calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. The past, the present, and the future of India's economy and financial markets. That's the topic we'll be discussing on this episode of the Take 15 series. Hi, I'm John Bowman with CFA Institute, and I'm here with Satyajit Das, who is a renowned international expert in derivatives and risk management, and an author of several books, including Traders, Guns, and Money, as well as the more recent Extreme Money. Das, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Let's start by maybe looking backwards first. Uh, Often investors will talk within the same breath about China and India. Uh, but actually, the current state of the economies, and maybe even more importantly, their economic histories are very different. Many will argue that India followed a socialist model of economic development after British independence, uh, and obviously that changed with the early reforms of the, the, the 90s. Uh, but how has that history, that legacy, impacted and potentially challenged real economic reform over time? Well, I think it's fascinating because if you go back to thousands of years, India and China have had relationships which have been good and bad at different times. I think there's some interesting differences. For instance, China overall is a net exporter and a very powerful player in the world markets in terms of that. They have a current account surplus. India doesn't. The second thing is India, for instance, has a shortage of infrastructure. China has infrastructure to burn. On the other side, if you look at the different economies, India and partly because it's English-speaking, is very good at certain services and is an outsourcing center. China, on the other side, is a manufacturing powerhouse. So there's huge dissimilarities. The other dissimilarity is the style of management, because in the case of China, it's a command economy still, despite the change and the embracement of markets. There's very much a top-down, we decide, and this will happen, and it will happen. India is a far more pluralistic mess. I think there's a famous saying that in India, the choice is not between chaos and order, It's between manageable chaos and unmanageable chaos. So it's a very different place. But I think the interesting thing is the conjunction between that. And that's an artificial conjunction which was drawn really in the 2000s when firstly the Goldman Sachs research piece on BRICS came out where you had four countries which are basically not related to each other or not similar in each other put together. And then you had books like Chindia, which was a nice topical and catchy title. But the reality is there's also a commonality. And the commonality is... You have a massive humanity, which is over 2 billion, which is a large portion of the population. They're two large markets. They're two very large economies and growing. So the rest of the world is fascinated by these two countries because they need these two countries to step up to the plate, as it were, and become a bigger part of the world and, to some extent, alleviate some of the problems of the developed world. So there are similarities and differences which we need to recognize. Sure. Well, one of the, the, I think, more telling dislocations has been that as the democratic economy over time, it's actually been India that struggled more to, to really push forward sustainable economic reform, as, as we talked about. Uh, but there seems to be a new zeal since September, the last few months at least. You've seen an opening up of multi-brand retail, foreign direct investment reform in insurance, airlines. Uh, 
how are we finally finally starting to see that long-awaited uh, seeds beginning of some momentum in sustainable reform? India is full of false dawns. <laughs> the first reform, I suppose, in modern times, after the sort of long run of socialism or socialist policies under the Nehru slash Congress regimes was in the 80s when under Rajiv Gandhi there were sort of tentative feelings out. And it was born of desperation because the economy wasn't working, nothing was working, growth wasn't there, you know, people were leaving in droves. And so everybody sort of said something has to be done. And crucially, and it's very important to understand that, when Manmohan Singh made his rather momentous decisions in the early 1990s, it wasn't sort of he woke up one morning with a clean sheet of paper, they were desperate. You know, they had a current account problem and they had all sorts of problems and this was the only way they could really deal with it. But then, of course, India also has this fantastic capacity to delude themselves and rest on their laurels, so nothing happens for a long period of time. Then we get another crisis, and then we do something like that. So I think this is a reaction to a crisis, which in this case is a slowdown in growth and a rising current account and all sorts of other dysfunctions. But if you actually look at what they're doing, the things sound good on paper, but the question I would ask is, do they address the right issues and are they going to get implemented? So if you actually look at the take one example, the retail investment. Now, this has been kicking around in some shape or form for a number of years, but the crucial issue is what is it trying to address? And in my view, it's trying to address a fundamental problem of logistics. If you can't get goods, like agricultural goods or other goods, which are produced with minimal loss to market, it's a fundamental, dysfunctional sort of process. So somehow somebody in bureaucracy has decided that changing the retail end of the spectrum it's somehow going to miraculously change all of that. And if you notice the policy announcements, getting Walmart in will fix the you know, supply chain. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, fixing roads and fixing a whole bunch of other things would probably also help along the way. So I'm not sure how much of the real problem they will fix. And then there is the whole conditionalities. You can take so much of this, you can't take so much of this, you have to allow this. So in terms of small retail sector to survive, you have to stock local goods, all those types of things. The conditionality list is rather long. And like all things in India... The actual problem is in the implementation. Firstly, politically, what will be the final form of the reforms? Because it has to get to very complex coalition processes and so forth. And then there's the state governments, which will have a say in some of these things. Then, of course, there is the bureaucracy, which have their own agendas to do. So by the time this whole process gets out, it might look somewhat different. But the second issue is, okay, well, let's assume we get some reasonable progress. Then, of course, you're calling on foreign investors to come in. The question is, Number one, are they interested? Number two, will they be able to put up with all of this process? Number three, do would the economics stack up? And finally, do they have the capital and the willingness to invest at that point in time? So everybody's assuming this is a magical fix which will happen at the flick of a switch. It won't. It'll take a long period of time. And the other interesting thing about that is these changes are easier to do when you have a bit of flexibility and time up your sleeve. And secondly, the external environment, the external world, is in a healthy state which it's not. So you're under enormous pressure to do these changes in a very, very unsettled world, which makes it very, very difficult. And in India, for instance, we're facing an election in the next couple of years. So these policies might change again. So if you're a foreign investor, you have to wear all of those things up to say, well, do I want to play in this game? And the other sad thing is foreign investors have been burnt. They've come in, they've been burnt over and over again. And at some point in time, somebody says, look, this is an interesting long-term story. But we've tried. And how many times do we keep trying without any success? Right. Well, you mentioned supply chain dysfunction and bureaucracy, which has been a long, transcendent obstacle on real change. If you have 15 minutes with Prime Minister Singh, how would you uh, counsel him? What would be the top 
two or three priorities to ensure that these foreign investors don't once again think this is one of these false dawns that we've seen so many times in the past? Well, I think the first thing is you don't have a plan for the next crisis or the current crisis. You really have to sit down. And this is where China has, because of its political system, been able to do it very successfully. They have very long time horizons. Like, for them, 10 years is nothing, 20 years is nothing. I think it's a very famous episode, which is misquoted, I think, when uh, Cho Enlai was asked by Henry Kissinger what Cho Enlai thought about the French Revolution. And Cho Enlai, who I think misunderstood the question, said, it's too early to tell. And so they have a longer runway of thinking about it. So I think there's no point in doing something which fixes something immediately. So you've got to say, okay, where do we want to be in the world in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years' time? And the issue there is to fix some basic things. You've got to fix your agricultural sector where there's a lot of underemployed people. You've got to basically fix your process of getting the goods to market. You've then got to fix some basic software, which is things like the education system to produce better educated workers. And then you sort of work your way through that, like infrastructure, fixing basic road systems, transport systems, all the things that people take for granted in other countries. I mean, the most amusing thing is while we were doing this interview, the power went out, so we had to start again. So and those things are actually adding to cost and adding to inefficiency. If you set up in India, I always say to people, assume you're going to an entirely greenfield site without anything. So have your own power, have your own sewerage, have your own things. And they look at me like I'm crazy. I'm saying that's probably a good place to start. You may not need all of it, but you need that. So start building that way. And the other thing I would say to him is he's got to somehow change the political dynamic where there is almost a bipartisan, or in India it would never be bipartisan, it would be multipartisan in a very big way, agreement that these economic issues are not going to be changed for a long period of time. And that would give confidence to investors to be able to invest in a sensible way. And the other thing you've got to break, I think, in India is something that's never been broken, which is India is an oligarchy. And basically, everybody talks about the era of the licensed Raj, where under the socialist doctrines, everything was licensed, everything was centrally controlled and created a very corrupt system. Now, the problem is those corrupt systems have not changed. The name has changed, the way it's done has changed, but it's still there. And he's got to break that in some shape or form. And it's very difficult to break all of that, given the fact that these people are very powerful, they contribute heavily to party finances, so they have a political as well as an economic voice. So he has to have a strategy for doing that. So he has to basically have consensus economically, he has to have consensus socially, he has to have consensus at a business level, and he's got to do that. Mm. And uh, my 15 minutes would be up by then, and at that point he would laugh at me and saying that basically uh, I'm a dreamer and he's 80-something years old and he would never ever live to see any of these reforms realized, so perhaps he'll leave it to the next generation. <laughs> well, final question, briefly. Uh, the part of the bio I didn't mention at all, maybe the most exciting part of the bio, is that you were a star, made a cameo appearance in Inside Job. Uh, and one of the famous quotes that, that you made in there was that the only thing we learned from history is that we shouldn't pay much attention to it, in so many words. Uh, have we learned anything recently? Is there any evidence we've learned anything recently from the global financial crisis? Well, I think uh, you're being very nice and kind and flattering because I think I had a screen time of 15 seconds and I think I was in the credits between a uh, madame of a brothel and a convicted criminal, which I think just put me into the right sort of milieu. But to answer your question... I think fundamentally we've learned nothing. Because if you look at what the global crisis was about, it was about too much debt, which we haven't fixed. We've just moved the debt from private balance sheets onto public balance sheets. 
global imbalances in trade and capital flows and so forth. Nobody's got the will to fix any of that. And the other thing is to address financial systems. In my view, financial systems should be supporting to the real economy. And we all know part of the problem came from the fact that the financial system became too large. What happened was claims on the real economy and trading those claims became more important than the real economy. And there's a large part of the population which was ignored and a financial group basically said trading this is much more fun and much more interesting so we can just ignore that. And we need to rebalance that to something. We need to get back to real innovation, real economies, rebalance. The problem is those changes are wrenching changes to the structure of the global economy. And I don't think we've seen other than very tentative steps in that direction. So it's disappointing to say five years after the crisis that we are in much the same places and probably somewhat worse off than we were at that time. Well, it sounds like still many lessons to be learned for both India and the global central banks. Uh, Well, thanks so much for joining us, Das. I really appreciate you being here. It's my pleasure. And thank you for joining this episode of the Take 15 series. Copyright 2013 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.